Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy House. Hello. I am delighted to be joined by my co-host, friend, fellow American, Lizzie No. Well, hey there, Cindy. How's it going? How did I do on that radio hello? I tried to make it both casual and professional. I felt really safe and secure. I'm so glad to hear that. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing fine. Uh, we were just talking about walking our dogs around the neighborhood. And my dog is a celebrity in the neighborhood. Well, he's one of the handsomest dogs I've ever come across. He's a giant. He's First of all, he's so handsome and he's like a giant. So there are many people in the neighborhood who know his name and they don't know my name. That's good. I think that's the goal, right? Yes, to remain anonymous yeah. <laughs> while walking your giant dog. Also, it's like no one will mess with you Yeah, if you have this like giant dog. Unfortunately, I have the opposite issue, which is that I have a new puppy, which we discussed on a previous podcast, but he is a tiny little baby terrier, and people simply love to approach me to talk to him, mm. which is fine with me as long as they don't also want to talk to me. Like if I mm -hmm. haven't had coffee yet, or if I'm simply feeling moody and alienated, like just because my dog is cute doesn't mean that I am friendly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one thing I guarantee that you will not get with your tiny dog is uh, people telling you that your dog weighs more than you do. Wow. Which wow. happens. What a fun conversation to have with a stranger discussing your weight. Yeah. People are crazy. Yeah. People are wild. Um, my partner, Cole, has really, every time I have one of these little interactions, he's like, dogs give people the excuse to be how they really want to be. Like some people are deep down just really friendly and like want to connect and want to meet their neighbors. And some people are creepy and strange and they use the dog <laughs> as an inroad to acting weird with you. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I agree with Cole, as I usually do. He's the greatest. Hey, Cole. Hey. Uh, so any updates you want to share? You've been into anything recently? Yes, I went to see Anais Mitchell and Samantha Crane in Brooklyn, and it was such a phenomenal show. Um, it really gave me such an appreciation of how folk music can come alive in the live setting. I thought they were both such great storytellers and vocalists and technicians. Like we knew this, but seeing hmm. them live um, was just so impressive and I found it so, so inspiring. So that's been the highlight 
of the last couple weeks for me. And I started playing some electronic music with Domino Kirk. She is an amazing musician here in Brooklyn, and she hired me to play harp for her live shows. And it was so daunting. And I was like, I'm a folk musician. Is this really me? Am I going to be able to do it? And I found it like so expansive to try a new style Mm. of music on the harp. Um, And we had our first show last night at Rockwood Music Hall, and it was super fun. That's amazing. You're going to become Amelia Meath in no time. That is my plan. Uh, Amelia Meath from Sylvan Esso is my dream human. She's so brilliant. Just so brilliant. And also, I don't know if you follow her on Instagram or not, but her tour outfits have really been rocking my world lately. Wow. They're like combination of bathing suit and like tomato planter, I think. Okay, that's intriguing. And I think I should try to do some research on that before my summer shows because mm-hmm. last night I thought about wearing white jeans because it was a Memorial Day show. And then it was too hot and sweaty to get the jeans on. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is this is not cute. I need to find some breezy, maybe swimsuits to be wearing on stage. So if oh, you yeah. see me on stage in a bikini, it's not because... I've changed my fashion sense. It's because it's hot. Yeah. I mean, good for you for trying to wear white jeans. It's difficult. It is. It, it really is, especially when you take the subway. You never know what Oof. could happen. <laughs> yeah, and you can't, you, you just like cannot touch anything or sit on anything. No. Bad, bad news. Um, What's new with you? Uh, what is new with me? I got a new bicycle. Really? Yeah, we were riding our bikes on the bike trail the other day, and I got a compliment on my new bicycle. Wow. And on my helmet. Aw, Cindy. And I was like, this is, I mean, this is really where it's at. Say it with me. Safety is sexy. That's right. Uh, Elizabeth and I went to see the new Downton Abbey film because I am one of those people. And we were walking, and I was, like, looking at my phone trying to find the address of a restaurant or something. And this woman was in uh, an electric wheelchair, and I was looking down at my phone, like, not paying attention. And she scooted by us, and she was like, you both look nice. And said it in, like, that, with that kind of inflection. Like, we had asked her, like, who looks nicer? But we didn't. And she, but she was just like, you both look nice. And uh, Elizabeth's like, did you hear what that lady said? And I, I, she told me, and I was just, like, extremely delighted. Cindy, I love that for you. And, like, circling back to our earlier conversation about people using your dog to talk to you, I never, ever, ever want to hear what a cis man thinks about my appearance on the street. Literally never. Um, <laughs> I guess unless I have, like, a stain on my shirt. No, even then, don't tell me. It's none of your business. But, like, if a woman... Or a non-binary person is like, you look great. Or like, cool shoes. It absolutely touches me to my soul. And I feel so seen. Yeah. There is nothing better than those lady compliments. <laughs> I agree. It really resonates with me. And I've never thought about it before. That's how, it's actually how, um, that type of mentality is actually how Elizabeth and I first connected. <gasps> uh, so she listened to my radio show in Pittsburgh and had like a huge crush on me. And her friend reached out to me and was like, my friend Elizabeth um, 
loves your radio show and we want to get her a great Christmas gift. Can you send a picture of yourself holding up a sign that says, good morning, Elizabeth? And I was like, a lady wants me to do this? A hundred percent I will. That is so cute. And I have been waiting for you to share that extremely cute story on the pod. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good one. It's a really good origin story, but it's like kind of long too. So you can't just be like, how did you meet? And you can't be like, a mutual friend. Well, why don't we, um, why don't you keep telling the story in installments each week on Basic Folk? Like that's like <laughs> the very beginning and like chapter two will be on our next episode. Okay. That's called an incentive. Right, right. Well, speaking of um, 15 minutes into the podcast, thanks for listening today to Basic Folk. We're a listener supported podcast, uh, so we rely on small contributions from people who listen and love the podcast and you can make a contribution at basicfolk.com slash donate we're kind of like obama in that way in that we are loved by many and we are loved by elites but our real power comes from the small donations of regular people that's exactly right i got our entire fundraising strategy from barack obama What's Thank up, you Rob? for noticing. Yeah. Um, if you uh, don't want to contribute, that's also fine. You can join our email list at basicfolk.com and follow us on social media. Today we're going to be getting into Christina Vane with Lizzie No. Can I talk about Christina Vane? Yes, please. Well, the way that I first came across Christina Vane was around five years ago um, when she was on her big, wild, adventurous cross-country tour that we talk about a lot um, during our during our interview. And um, I think she was crowdfunding for part of the tour. And I didn't know her music yet, but I was like, who is this cool woman with blue hair traveling all alone, all over the country, sleeping in a tent on this great adventure? Like, I want to be part of it. And then once I heard her music, I was hooked. She has that incredible bottleneck slide that kind of is one of the pillars of her sound. And what stood out to me during our conversation was just how many lives she's lived. She grew up in Europe, but her dad is American. So she ended up coming to Princeton, New Jersey for college, which is incidentally my hometown. So we took hey. a quick detour to talk about um, the wonders of central New Jersey, particularly the Wawa convenience store. Um, <laughs> Christina is a student of the blues. She like believes in the blues. She fell in love with it and like really has made it her life's work to interpret that tradition. And her latest album, Make Myself Me Again, is like a return to some of the classic sounds that she fell in love with, which I, f I find to be really admirable because in this day and age, we have no shortage of bells and whistles in when it comes to recording and producing. And she has a really wide range of influences from pop to rock to emo, like all the classic 2000s sounds. Um, but she really made it a point to kind of return to herself and um, return to the original sounds of the blues that she fell in love with. So this record is super fun. She's an incredible guitarist, songwriter, and singer. Great. 
Well, let's check out a song from Christina's new album. Uh, this song is How You Doin'? And then we'll get to our interview with Lizzie No and Christina Vane on Basic Folk. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am so excited to be talking to Christina Vane. Hi, welcome for to the pod. Me. Oh, I jumped the gun. I'm just so grateful to be here. You didn't jump the gun. Everything that you do is correct because the guest is always right. <laughs> wow. I was just adjusting my screen so that you can see more than just my forehead. <laughs> um, Okay, I have a million questions, especially about your new record, but I want to start way back at the beginning. Sure. Baby Christina. <laughs> um, I know a lot of these, the answers to these questions, but I want our listeners to know. Can you tell me where you grew up and what were your earliest memories of music? Like, what were your parents listening to in your childhood home? Yeah. So I grew up actually mostly in Paris, France. I was born in Italy and we moved around a little bit. So I lived in Italy, then I went to England, then I went to France, then I went back to Italy, and then I did high school in France. So there's a whole lot to like unpack there, you know, with oh, yeah. like what comes with that musically. My dad is American, so and a product of, you know, he was born in the 60s, so the 80s and 70s and all that music. So he was really into classic rock. Um, but not just that. He liked, I don't know, I'm just going to list things. My mom, too. So, like, Dire Do Straits, it. Depeche oh, Mode, yeah. Rolling Stones, Tinder Sticks. Um, and then, like, you know, the classics, Aerosmith, all those kind of yeah. just classic rock boy band style people. And, uh, like, Steely Dan and that kind of stuff a little bit, too. But they were always really random things. Like, I remember one of the songs that we loved as a family which is really weird now thinking back to it is um everlast i don't know if you ever I love everlast yeah oh my god wait was did were is that the band that has that what it's like song that is the song oh no sorry the song that like my dad would blast in the cars and so people would rob their mother <laughs> for the ends. <laughs> and I was like six years old, like, Dad, oh what ends? Actually, Papa, what's ends? Um, and why would, you know, why would they kill children over it? Like, what's going on here? Um, so stuff like that. My dad, uh, my mom loved music. She was a little more open to the radio and to pop and stuff like that. Like Ricky Martin and Lou Vega and Shakira when they were... Oh my god, a lot younger, I guess. But she loved the Rolling Stones and Dire Straits mm -hmm. and Depeche Mode. Those were like the things we listened to a lot growing up with her. And yeah, so then when I started getting my own sort of ears about me, 
I got into pop punk, obviously. Mm-hmm. I think my first CD was Blink-182. I was in Italy, and I thought this was revolutionary stuff. It was Enema of the State. And actually, before that, it was the Cranberries and Alanis Morissette. And I actually credit those two artists and bands with a lot of my vocal style and just how I write yeah. songs and stuff. Um, oh, I hear that. Oh, thank you. Um, so those were like kind of... And then Destiny's Child was like yeah, a big course. one on rotation in my house uh, for me, not for my family. So <laughs> I did not learn how to sing in any kind of R&B style, which is really sad to this day. I always like in high school was jealous of people that could do runs like Beyonce or any mm-hmm. of those singers, but I went more like the Irish the uh, Dolores route. Uh, yeah. kind of route. <laughs> so, so that's more or less, you know, when I got into high school, I was getting a mix of what was big in Europe, so a lot of British indie, and the mm-hmm. Libertines, there's a whole scene around that whole thing with like skinny jeans and side bangs mm-hmm. and like jangly guitars, and I loved it. And uh, I haven't heard about the Libertines in so long. This is such a, this is such a cathartic interview already for me. Yes, <laughs> throwback. We are, I mean, I'm a millennial for sure, and I think we get made fun of a lot, which is totally okay yeah. by me, because I, think um it was a really fun time to be you know 16 I lived in Europe so I had friends in England I had lived there I would go back sometimes to like Glastonbury Festival with a friend of mine Mm -hmm. and I got to see some of these people like um I'm trying to think of some of these bands uh the Wombats they had a big song I did uh the Dirty Pretty Things which is an offshoot of the Libertines Mm -hmm. Did you ever listen to the Zootons in that time? Um, no, but I did listen to the Claxons and Art Brute yes. and Block Party and all these bands that were just, and the Strokes obviously were great. Of course. Um, so that and then punk and metal and classic rock that I got from my dad all just turned into this like angry thing in high school. Yeah. I was just really angsty. I had bright red hair in middle school. I used to wear leather chokers and like... I was a little punk. Yeah, people, I'm like flowers and sunshine. I have more questions about your early formation. Yeah. Because I've been, you know, I've I think I I first came across your music by like watching some of your Instagram videos and around the time of your first big cross country tour. But we'll get to that later. Oh my gosh. I'm that's curious awesome. about Yeah, I'm curious about what was going on when you first picked up guitar. What was the guitar? How did it come into your hands? And what was your practice routine like? Like how what were those early days like where you were just finding your way on your first guitar? So I was in middle school. I think I was in seventh grade. I was about 12 or 13. Excuse me. And I had always played music, um, but it had always been the piano, which I liked fine, but I really didn't connect with. And then the flute, which was like my passion. I just loved classical music, romantic and Baroque music. Mm -hmm. So I was really into that and choir. And... um, some there was this I was living in Italy in a town called Varese which is pretty small and there was a town music school that was just this couple uh, Manuela and Alberto Tensi I still remember their name because it was called Tensi School of Music shout out 
Yeah, thank you, because they really did. I, that was the only time I took formal lessons in singing was those two or three years I was with her, and he taught me theory and guitar. So I did music theory in Italian, which was um, mm -hmm. kind of, he was very like old school and kind of intense. And I think around that time, I really don't remember what sparked it, but I remember me and my brother were like, we want to play guitar, we want to play guitar. And so my dad bought us like those really cheap kids classical nylon string the guitars. The starter. Like, the cheapest oh, ones yeah. you can get. And we took our little guitars to the music school. My brother as well joined me at this place that I had been going to already for a little bit. I would bike down there. It was like something out of a, a weird movie. Um, and It's very precious. Yeah. And so when we were taking lessons, it only we only did lessons for six months. I do really well with structure and mm -hmm. teachers in general academia. I've always been like, I'm, even though I have red hair, I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. a good girl. And my brother would show up and just every time the teacher would be like, Stefano, you haven't practiced, oh, you know, and he's like, <laughs> no. But ironically, when we stopped doing lessons, which was around the time um, we just learned chords, we did a lot of like mm -hmm. exercises and then we did chords and then we both were like, you know what, I think we're good for whatever reason. And my brother took off on the guitar once we stopped and I kind of stayed stagnant where... Mm -hmm. We were both learning songs like Iggy Pop or Metallica or whatever, but he yeah. would learn the hard songs. And I would sort of just strum along chords to stuff. And I don't like to quote unquote play this card, but it's not a card, it's it's true. It's how I felt. I And I even heard the rhetoric around a lot of like the skater guys and stuff that women yeah. don't solo and women don't skate. They can play guitar, but they're never quite as good as the guys, or same with the skating thing, right? And I was like, not really a skater, but I thought all that stuff was cool because my big brother was into it, and we were very right. close. And those were the Avril Lavigne days. Like, there was a lot of cultural uh, currency around being, like, a cool skater-type person and having a little bit of that, like, tomboy energy. So I totally get why that felt actually really important. Like, yeah. seeing and yourself or not seeing yourself represented. I was a thousand percent what you just described. I was that mm -hmm. energy. I liked running with the guys. And I think now there's a word for it. It's called pick me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's, no! there's somewhere in between that, right? Like, when you're too young to even understand what it means mm -hmm. to, like, not be standing behind your gender, as it were, or what mm -hmm. that even looks like, it's not that you're, like, being a pick me you're just kind of subject to like you're saying this culture of like I'm cool enough to hang out with all the guys because I'm not annoying like yeah all the girls that are into their makeup so annoying like and now I'm like desperately trying to catch up yeah and it's rooted in misogyny but as kids yeah as kids we want to be we want to be at the center of things we don't want to be that like feminine thing that's reviled by mainstream culture and we learn that from media and stuff like yeah totally. I totally get that like pick me direction because it feels safe yeah and and I genuinely was very close to my brother we're like a year and a half apart he was the great above me I and he was a skater guy and just like all his friends were cool and so I would skate around the town with my like punk outfits on and mm -hmm. listen to punk and rock music. I was listening to a lot of like the Ramones and Black Flag and mm -hmm. Circle Jerks and that kind of thing at the time. So, um, so 
my guitar playing was mostly playing bar chords and or just basic chords. And I didn't really practice that much because my main passion was actually the flute. I just, I practiced mm-hmm. that all the time. And when I don't have a teacher, so those six months I had a teacher I practiced, but when I don't, I find it hard to motivate myself. So mm-hmm. it sort of stayed as like a background thing. And in high school, I got more into it. And uh, for Christmas one year, I got a like $100 court electric guitar, like a bright red plastic horrible guitar but it worked as an electric guitar it made a sound and um there's something special about a horrible cheap guitar yeah I almost like wish I still had it honestly um (laughs) I really do wish I still had it actually um but yeah so the pennies started to drop not even really for guitar so much but I started to songwrite late high school and I realized that my songwriting was centered around this instrument. I can't write songs on the flute. I don't want to write songs right. on the piano. And my first two years of college, like I went to college and my graduation gift going to college was a guitar, an, an acoustic, my, which I do still have, my first acoustic guitar um, in New Jersey where I went to school. We went to a music store and I picked it out and that was my gift. <gasps> Did you and go to Farrington's? I can't remember. It was on Route 1 right near Princeton. So. Yes, I grew up in Princeton, so oh I have a, a handful of questions for you oh about God, the 609, yes. because we probably were passing by each other in the same music stores. I love that so much. That's such a <laughs> crazy coincidence. Um, and that guitar, you know, became my tool, and I started, I was writing songs. I had recorded a few just sort of for mm-hmm. fun. What, what was your recording setup? Did you record like at home in GarageBand or were you collaborating with people? Yeah, so I had GarageBand and a Snowball mic by the time I think nice. I was a freshman. But part of my my gift for, for my senior year of high school before the guitar was that my father had a friend who had been in the recording business that he met through like mm-hmm. his normal job. And this person was leaving the normal job to go back into recording. And my dad, being like the Italian deal maker he is, was like, hey, like, you want (laughs) to give me a good deal? My daughter wants to record some songs. So um, so he got like a super cheap rate for me to go record five songs or something like that. And they're very baby. Like if you listen to these recordings, I had really great musicians with me. Like there was these two girls Mm -hmm. that I worked with twice. I went back to this guy in in college, too, because I really don't even know why, honestly. I wasn't planning to be a musician, to release this music. Mm -hmm. It was almost the way that you write poetry just so that it's there. It was just to have the fruit of my labor and of my creativity and be like, Mm -hmm. okay, I just recorded this song. Um, And I don't even really use those songs anymore. But yeah, that so it kind of just grew like this weird organic thing. I'd always loved music. I'd always you know, played music and then I started writing and then I started wanting to record what I was writing. And finally my brain caught up and I was like, I think you want to be a musician. Um, and that wasn't until the end of college that I like actually took the leap. So it was like a very long road getting there, but music's always been very big in my life. So I'm going to keep leading people through your fascinating life story. You go to Princeton university, study comparative literature then you moved to Venice Beach. Yes. Tell me about the scene. Tell me about, was it a culture shock? Like, um, I can't think of two more different places. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever lived in the South, but that's a third different place to add yes, to your... Yes, 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 yes. 
Um, Yeah, it was, so I graduated school and didn't know much except that I didn't want to live in New York, um, which is Mm -hmm. mostly where everyone goes after and they usually have real jobs. Um, And I didn't. I wanted to be a musician. And I was like, you know, I I interned in New York. I spent a lot of time and I actually really loved going back to New York, but I did not want to live there. I didn't want to do Princeton round two and be around all the people I already knew. So I... um, I traveled a little that summer. You know, I went back to Europe for a month or two. Mm-hmm. I stayed with my then boyfriend for maybe a few weeks too in Maryland, which is a bad time. Bad times in Maryland, or a new a new EP. When, when the company's <laughs> bad, the place is bad. Um, so I ended up going out to LA. My brother lived there already. Mm-hmm. I loved the sunshine. I liked the idea of the sea, all the things that objectively mm-hmm. make, you know, California a really awesome place to be. And the f- <laughs> I remember one of the first times we were on the boardwalk in Venice and my boyfriend had gone into like one of those medical marijuana sort of fake doctors at the time because it wasn't fully legal there yet. And he was all curious, like, what's going on? And I was like, I'm going to wait outside. But you go get it. But I uh, was waiting like, outside. I support you, but I can't be involved. Yeah, I was like, I don't know about all that, but you know about it, so let's do it. Um, this guy came up to me and just started bothering me, you know? And I put on, like, my New York face and mm-hmm. and my New York tone. And he just looks at me. I can't swear, I don't think, on this interview. But he was like, oh, you you some sort of New York stuck-up bitch. (laughs) And I had obviously not told this person. I was coming from the East Coast. And I was like, Mm -hmm. found it pretty comical, obviously. I was like, oh, well, you are kind of right. Like, I am definitely Mm -hmm. not California yet. And I just remember little things like that or noticing how much slower everything seemed to be moving because people were actually taking the time to be like, hi, how are you? And... Um, And I grew to really like that. I loved California. It wasn't easy. L.A. is not an easy beast. But Venice, the community I found there, I mean, it still feels like a dream sometimes. Oh, I just almost want to cry talking about it because it's like a day like today in Nashville, but dry and the sunshine. And you wake up and I had, you know, this cool apartment. I had two really cool apartments when I was there. One was this. My last one was the find that I will never find again, probably. But. I was sandwiched between the canals and the beach and I could just get my Mm. longboard and go out there and skate by the water and go and like sit with friends that were travelers or musicians and shoot the shit and just kind of like get on. And then I could skate further and go to Gold's Gym, my gym. And I used to go to that gym like every day. And the entire time you're just running into people that you know because it's it's a community there's a ton of tourists but on a you know 8 a.m on a monday or in the winter time when there aren't tourists there are real people there and you meet them if you are at all like i am community oriented and i also went to an open mic every wednesday that changed my life honestly because it gave me especially when that ex and i broke up because he was um, ended up being a really bad addict, which was very traumatic for me. I felt very alone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had moved there with him and he had sort of done a really good job of isolating me. And when he went to rehab, I had this family um, every Wednesday at the open mic. And they watched me learn and get better at guitar and write songs. And by the end of my time there, that was like, you know, that's where I could go and, and show up. And at any point, like if I wanted to sing a song, Isaac would just let me. And 
it was it was such a great thing and through them I met all these musicians and I got gigs and I started to get my first stab at like what is this like and the whole time I was working two to four jobs at any time so I worked for Live Nation I worked at a vintage store I worked at a donut shop I worked for production companies that did festival work and um, and I finally ended up at McCabe's which is a guitar shop out there mm-hmm. so I have you know I definitely had some tough times in LA but it like holds such a special place in my heart um, mm-hmm. that I didn't miss I didn't miss the Northeast. It wasn't like I missed bagels a lot. I really missed bagels and I missed the Wawa sometimes. But mm. I went back to the Wawa I know that on Wawa. my tour. Do, have you been to it recently? Because they have made it new and slick, and it really they don't. Ha- it doesn't have like the sort of community board. No, it's very it's very like postmodern now. So I lived in, when I went to school, I was at Forbes College, which Mm -hmm. is right across the road from that Wawa. So that was like our Wawa. I would spend nights studying with my buddies and we would go get like a Red Bull and Pirate's Booty at the Wawa or a bagel sandwich with roast beef and lettuce on it, which you can't just Mm. go anywhere and buy here, but it's okay. I hope our listeners are enjoying this very specific, very I know, niche, I'm like, you're gonna central New Jersey so uh, convenience store lore. <laughs> I am actually getting my life talking to someone who really knows. This well, is my heritage. I played a show in Wayne, Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. recently on my tour. I opened for Arlo McKinley, and it was such a good show that so I great. missed the kitchen cutoff. And the, I didn't get my dinner at this place. And I was like, <gasps> what? So I was starving. I hadn't. Re- I'd driven all day, and I'd been waiting for this one meal at this place. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be really good, and I was really sad. And I was like, "Well, I have to eat before I get back to Philly, where I'm staying with my friend." Mm-hmm. And guess what? There's a Wawa right there, open 24 hours, and you can get anything you want. Like they have quesadillas, they have mashed potatoes, chicken tenders. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, but so I went and got a Wawa meal. But just so people know, like what's out there. Just yeah, so just know. so you know that Wawa, <laughs> we're just spreading the word. No one's saying it's going to be the best mashed potatoes you've ever had, but no. they're pretty good when you're hungry. So, onto your your driving and touring stuff. There are many ways to skin a cat as far as like becoming a professional musician, and you really like did it in a particular way, and. <laughs> That's actually how I first came to know about your music, which is that you did this DIY cross-country sojourn. And I just want to get a picture of that time. So, like, are you alone in your car? Where are you staying? What are you eating? Is there any sort of a routine? Um, How'd you keep yourself safe? Go. So um, I call that, and I called it at the time, the grand adventure or the great adventure Mm -hmm. in my head. I was, like, doing some Jack Kerouac shit or something. Um, but I, it really felt that way to me, and it, it took many months to plan. I remember having the idea, like, well before Christmas of the year before, mm-hmm. and telling my family, like, I'm I'm going to do this, because I had hit a wall in Los Angeles. I was pretty depressed. I had, I think, established some not helpful markers of success and definitions of success that I wasn't hitting, and I was like... I should just quit and do something realistic with my life. Like, what am I doing? Everyone around me has managers and all this stuff, and I don't have any of that. And I 
you know, had a, uh, I had a moment on Instagram because even back then it was like I had my little family on Instagram. It was a lot older yeah. back then. And with the hashtags of like slide guitar and Delta Blues, I had maybe maybe a couple hundred followers at the time, which for mm-hmm. me was a lot. And um, it was. It was a lot. Like I was just the person in my room learning blues guitar, you know. Um, so I remember posting something on that Instagram channel being like, look, I don't often get emotional, but I'm really going through it. I feel really defeated by this industry. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere and I don't know what to do. I feel like I should just quit, which was a little bit of a childish cry for help on the internet, but you know, we have our moments and (laughs) the outpour of kindness from people, even that small number, whether it was like, I don't remember if it was like a thousand or whatever, however many followers, it was like I got emails, I got inboxes, I got comments on the post, comments on Facebook, and they were like, you have to keep going. So some just ranged from, I love your music, it's great, and then others were like, you know, my dad loved your music and we played your song at his funeral. And this was already six years ago, so that mm-hmm. to me was shocking. Like, I didn't have a far reach, I still don't even have that far of a reach, but I thought that I had been maybe a little bit selfish and sort of like self-indulgent to be so like, I'm just going to quit because it's not easy. So I was like, you know, they're right. And maybe I just need to take my music outside of LA. Like, I think that if I go other places, they'll understand what I'm doing a little better and maybe it will feel different. And I was right. Um, So I planned this five month journey. I left mid-April. And I had never done anything like it. I, I didn't grow up camping. I had only camped a few times out of a car in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I had never, like, made a fire. I had never done a... I mean, maybe, like, once or twice at a Boy Scout thing or whatever. But, like, city kids, we just right. don't get that kind of skill. So I lo- watched a few YouTube videos, thought really hard about what I was going to pack. I was going to do it out of my Prius at the time, which is insane. And mm-hmm. I am really glad that the universe had this weird thing where I actually got into a car crash and totaled the Prius about two months before my trip. And I crowdfunded enough to lease the bigger car that I have now, which is a RAV4. And <gasps> I drive a RAV4. Oh my God. I knew I liked you already. Um, RAV4 gang. Yeah, and so Ravi, or now I call I call my car robot because it is a robot. It's a you know it's a 2018. Mm-hmm. It was it was that year, and it's got all wheel drive, which was so important on this tour because I ended up in some really weird places that were like muddy mm-hmm. or gravelly or scary, and I don't think I would have made it out with my Prius. But long story short, I guess I had sort of like my car compartmentalized where I had a big duffel for five months, ranging from Montana in April to the South in August, right? So I had like everything from a Canada goose jacket to a bikini. Guys, I think I need to pause and ask people to take a moment to think about how you would pack for such a trip, especially as a woman (laughs) who has to like, at least look somewhat presentable. Like I recently did what I thought was like, an act of insanity which was a two-month tour going from like Canada to Florida so I had to pack like a winter coat and a bikini and everything in between so you get this how did so are you do are you using laundromats how are you like actually having all your shit for five months yeah so um much to the like worry of most people who knew me I didn't have plans for where I was staying most of the time except the national park stays. So mm-hmm. I I think it was like significantly easier back then to get spots. It was already still kind of hard, but I got campsites at I think Yellowstone, at Glacier in Montana, 
um, at Zion. I got two weeks there. And because I was self-booking and so much less far along than I am now in terms of, like, my performance of who I knew and Mm -hmm. everything, my gigs were, like, three a week. On a good week, Mm -hmm. it might be five if if I was in Asheville or a place where there were a lot of gigs to be had. But when I was out there in the middle of nowhere, sometimes it was, like, three gigs around that week and then I had all this time like Monday to Thursday to go be in parks and honestly that was a a more pleasant way to tour than being stacked and I'm so grateful to be stacked and have gigs almost every night when I go out but it takes away the ability to then be in this amazing place and explore places around which was part of what I think made that journey so magical for Mm -hmm. me I had never been anywhere except the two coasts. And, you know, my father is American and we had sort of been very heavily not American for most of my life. So to come and be like the one thing that is unique to the States, not the one thing, but one of the things is the nature because it's a lot of old growth, a lot of like almost untouched stuff, which you just don't get so much of in Europe. It's a lot smaller and it's a lot older. So it's been cultivated and logged and there aren't all these crazy animals. And so I was out there in like Montana, you know, just kind of like, what is this place? This is amazing. And everything felt like that. Every new place, the desert, the tundra, you know, the wet south, all of it was just like a joy. And it did, you know, I was playing these gigs that I would have booked at bars, cafes, and breweries pretty much exclusively um, to mostly usually 10, 15 people unless it was a bar that had its own built-in crowd Mm -hmm. and meeting those people and being stoked and very often what I would do rolling into town, which I just miss being able to do this. I just feel like now, weirdly, even though I have more of a reach, it would be weirder to do this is I would just go on my Instagram story and be like, hey, does anyone in Gainesville area have a bed for me tonight? Mm-hmm. And obviously I'd use my brain to filter out things that felt unsafe, which never actually happened one time even. And and or I would ask the people, the bookers of the bar, if they knew somewhere I could stay that night. One time in Chicago, I even asked on the mic of my gig that night, like, hey, mm-hmm. I don't have a place to stay tonight, but I have a tent. Does anyone have a yard that they could just let me put my tent in? That is punk rock, Christina. <laughs> I didn't think of it like that at the time, but yeah, I was very much, having been such a type A person and a planner, I felt like I had planned the things that needed to be planned, and I wanted to leave the rest up to to chance and be like, mm-hmm. maybe I'll find, and I found, I got tipped off early on in the tour by these two really cool girls at Yellowstone. We were all kind of, it was a really funny story actually. It was my first experience at a big park and I was like, or I had done Glacier, but Glacier was mm-hmm. a lot quieter. Yellowstone was like, it was like a city. It was not, mm-hmm. you know, where the camping is and it's just people everywhere really not feeling like wild at all. No one said hi, no one was like, oh hey, like normal camping where they're friendly. And I was just there like, this is not the vibe. And these two girls rolled up at like six in the morning when I was waking up in a pickup truck and they were like, hey, you look cool. You wanna wanna take a dab? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) it is seven in the morning and I'm about to go on a 16 mile hike. Um, Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I talked to them (laughs) and they were super cool and they were like, this place sucks. We're gonna go camp outside in a free campsite. And I was like, how do you find out? And they told me about freecampsites.net, which has like fueled almost every camp stay I've done since then because you can look up free campsites anywhere within an area so that's between yeah between those things I just I had a tent I never slept in my car one time and I think I stayed in a hotel 
like once and that was in New Orleans after just like some bad experience like where I was staying and I was like I don't think I want to be here anymore and I was like I just gave in and got got a room for a few days I was actually there for an American Idol audition on my tour which is funny yeah um that was a weird thing so it was really cool oh my god yeah you tried out for American Idol in New Orleans? Do, I mean, I, okay, I have... I actually was on American Idol. Oh my gosh, I got, actually I did know this. Yeah, I got but through I was, to uh, Hollywood Week. I got like halfway through Hollywood Week. I never made it on TV, um, but I got through both auditions, the one with Katy Perry or whatever, barely. Um, she didn't, I don't think she liked me. She said I was better off in Nashville. And I think I understand what she means, honestly. She wasn't, mm-hmm. I think she was being real with me. She was like, you're older than everybody here not like that's a bad thing but like you probably don't want to put up with this kind of stuff you know what you want and you're a writer right and I was like those are not great recipes for uh reality show success (laughs) yeah and I think that became apparent pretty soon and also just the the talent on that show was great so I don't know what my place was in that except the alternative blues girl um and that lasted very (laughs) short time but yeah, so it was a really, really crazy time. I saw places I'd never seen. I stayed with total strangers. I stayed with old friends or family friends that maybe were in the area. And I wrote a lot of songs and that was the last record that came out was all about that. Like you, you touched on this briefly, but what was your process for like kind of closing the page on that first record and that first big adventure and kind of starting this new record because it wasn't that much time in between number one and number two. Um, Were there particular sounds you were trying to get on the new record? Uh, It's like a kind of different tonally. What was the process? Well, so while I put them out very close together, I actually recorded Nowhere Sounds Lovely in 2018 when I moved to Nashville. Or 2019, really early 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did that with Cactus Moser, who is mm-hmm. amazing. He's really great. And he brought in his and Winona's band and some of these great players. Tommy Hannum, mm-hmm. who's a big player around Nashville, plays Steel. And uh, Dow Tomlin on bass. And that added... And he played drums. So that gave it that sort of country feel that is a little bit in that old record. And it, I own, I wanted a little bit of that, and I do regret maybe not having a few songs where I got Tommy to come back and play some steel. I kind of dropped the ball on that. But that was 2018, and then it sat for two years because yeah. I was shopping it around, and I was trying my best to do something with it. And I, at a certain point, just got really mad, and I was like, I am done waiting. And then right as I decided, that pandemic hit, and I was like, I don't care. People yeah. need music. Like... Just because they're not going out doesn't mean that I'm not going to put out a record. So I did. um, And I feel like the time that was in between that, so 2019 to 2021, is when I wrote the rest of the record, of this this last record. I wrote more stuff. Mm -hmm. I wrote it about, you know, all kinds of stuff. But it's a lot less about that one magical journey. So it kind of made it harder to market this record honestly Mm -hmm. because people love a story and so last year it was easy to be like this is the story and it's so cool and with this record it's sort of like this is me and that's not a story unless you want to like get into who I am and what it means to me you know so it's I knew I was taking a little bit of a risk 
Yeah, that's a huge challenge. I mean, that's like getting into the meat of the music business stuff that's really ugly. Like we like to think that a great record will find its audience, but it's a lot easier for a great record to find its audience if there's also a like cinematic storyline that goes with it. Um, But luckily here on Basic Folk, we love the personal nitty gritty woo woo stuff. I'm curious because, I mean, Make Myself Me Again, it's such an overt title, and you're really going for that self-evaluation, the reflection, outside looking in, inside looking out stuff. Like, that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like, the meat of this record. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, as a person that has, like, so many different identities, like, across cultures and across musical traditions, how do you conceptualize yourself? Like, is it a spiritual thing for you? Is it an artistic thing? Like, what are you trying to say on this record about who you are? So that's a really good question. I think for almost anybody, I'm sure, identity is just like a tough thing to tackle. And at different points in your life, you feel that more than others. Um, But it's definitely always been really tricky, at least for my nationality. And that part of, like you're saying, I have the New Jersey Christina that like can talk Mm -hmm. to you about Wawa and whatever and I can connect with people from there and then there's the Europe Christina who is you know grew up over there and can talk about all those things over there and LA Christina who wore knee socks and and hats and skated around Mm -hmm. and you know whatever it started to feel like they were all almost different people which was just really hard for me I was like I don't want to be absorbed, keep being absorbed by the places I go to. I want to start being myself in those places. And I'm always myself. Like if if anyone knows me, I'm very blunt. I'm very outspoken. I'm not like, you know, oh, I have to pretend to be something. But I get excited and I get like almost overcome with whatever hat I'm wearing at that moment. And then I realize like, while it's a great hat, it's not quite right. And that's exactly the theme of Make Myself Me Again, of like the video of some of the photos where Mm -hmm. I'm wearing all these different colors and then I finally get to blue, which is just fun because I love blue. Blue tip. And I'm like, yay, I made it. That was the idea of of coming of age, which is what I feel like I'm doing now. Um, You know, I turned 30 and I, the pandemic forced upon me this really deep introspective um, mix of therapy and spiritualism and meditation where I'm just realizing that I am like whoever I want to be, which sounds really cheesy, but I didn't have to be, you know, the country girl that's trying to be that or the skater girl that's trying to be that. I am just all of those things in some mm-hmm. way. And to to kind of find, start that journey of being at peace with myself instead of trying to like understand which fragment is the most me. It's like, they're all me. And so that's, I wrote Make Myself Me Again in a park. And what's funny about this song is I started writing that first verse for somebody else, mm-hmm. even though it's, the whole song is for myself really now. But that first verse, like, I hope you're eating right, that you sleep well at night, is really for someone else. And as soon as I wrote those lines, I was like, I don't want to write this for some guy that I miss that I haven't talked to in two years. I want to write this for myself. Like, I've never written a song that's kind to myself. And it started, it's kind of started this like theme in my head, not for writing so much, because a lot of the other songs are about heartbreak or places or whatever, but just of being kinder to myself and trying to be, you know, understanding that just because some other people have a more clear sense of where they're from or, you know, what their heritage is, 
it doesn't take away from who I am as a whole person. You know, that's that's just one conversation. And in fact, there are other people out there like me that are from different places and that, that doesn't get in the way of them enjoying whatever they're enjoying or doing what they're doing, you know? And so that's sort of, sort of what I was getting at in that song. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it really is about being present and that self-compassion of like, what I am now is enough and fine. And it's many different things. And yeah. it all still falls together. Pretty much, yeah. Can you tell me the story behind um, Oxbow Meander Loop? Like, what was your setup in recording that song? Yeah, so that's a banjo tune that I had started writing and I hadn't finished. And I brought it to my friend Kyle Tuttle, who is a banjo mm-hmm. player. He plays with Molly Tuttle. He's a really mm-hmm. great player. And we're, we were very good friends. And I he sort of helped me finish the tune and then I was like I really like this song like I might even try and put words to it so I put some words to it and when it came in time to record I wanted to do it as a double banjo tune so it's me and Kyle he's playing a baritone banjo and I'm playing a regular banjo on Clawhammer he also plays Scrug style mm-hmm. so it's like two different things um, and my boyfriend Tyler I don't think we may have been officially dating at the time, but we were hanging out a whole bunch and I had played the song with him a million times and my guitar player, Carl, like wasn't able to make that date. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do you want to be on the record? And he was like, sure. So Tyler is actually on guitar on that. And I got Billy Contreras, who is just Mm -hmm. such a good fiddle player. And I specifically asked him to fiddle on this because um, I love Bronwyn's playing and I have her on those two tracks. But Billy has this sort of um, totally different style, and I thought it would go well with Kyle's, and that both of them could sort of push each other into like a weird musical place, which I don't usually mm-hmm. do. So that's, yeah, and then my um, bass player was Brooke, who actually produced the record. So for those string band songs um, where we wanted to track live, he would play bass and have someone else come in and record. And in that case, I think cool. it was D- Dan Davies who recorded that song. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, so, and then I put the video of me and Kyle a long time ago when we wrote the song on Instagram, and a good friend of all of ours, actually, Alex, who plays drums with Lindsay Lou, was like, I was like, what should we call this song? And he was like, Oxbow Meander Loop. Or actually, he said Mississippi River or something, and then he was like, and explained it. He was like, it's an Oxbow Meander Loop, which Mm -hmm. is a real term for a river that does just that. Yeah. And I just liked that part of his comment so much that I called it Oxbow Meander Loop because it's pretty meandering. Cool. It's like a little out there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's it, I always love when somebody from the rhythm section is producing and playing because then you know the groove will be correct. Is there yeah. ever going to be like a full uh, like psychedelic bluegrass album from <laughs> Christina Vane? <laughs> I don't think psychedelic bluegrass is in the cards for me, but I I will say that (laughs) I have been like really welcomed into the jamgrass community and I'm really loving it there because I am not a traditionalist in in anything I do. And so while I love playing traditional string music and I've done that a little bit here in Nashville, it feels really cool. I actually play all my my stuff this weekend with drums, even the banjo Mm -hmm. songs. And obviously that that raises eyebrows in the trad community Mm -hmm. still. Oh, it ruffles feathers. Yeah, so I'm like, you know what? I might not be doing exactly what you guys are all doing, but you accept me and you like my band and you have, 
you know, great tie dye and always want to give mm-hmm. me stuff at shows. So I am all about this community. I love, I love the Jamgrass community. I think they're like some of the best fans and, and players out there. Yeah, that's a that's like if you love live shows, you're gonna there's there's a lot to love about Jamgrass. Yeah. Um, my final question about this this record and where you're at as a like a recording artist right now is like. How would you describe your signature guitar tone if you have one? And like, how do you know when the tone is right um, when you're listening through your recordings? Um, That is a tough question because tone seeking literally has taken me years. So, you know, my tone was like, okay on that that record from California a long time ago. It was good even, but... Mm -hmm. And it worked for the sounds I was trying to do. But uh, since then, I have just used the same amp um i have a blues junior and i got tipped off by a friend to overdrive the master with the volume so if you have a master and a volume Mm -hmm. normally the master's louder and the volume's a little quieter if you bring the volume past the master it will overdrive your tubes naturally so even if you don't have an overdrive setting on your amp if you have a tube amp and you have a master and a volume you can create gain or crunch and and drive which um and it's this warm and you can control how crunchy or not it is by how much you overdrive it and yeah like when you're really digging in that's gonna shine totally and i love that because it's i like it better than the distortion pedal i use honestly um Mm -hmm. if i can avoid using my pedal i will just get the crunch on the amp so that's part of my tone and the other thing is uh sort of leftover from blues players and still to this day in clarksdale a lot of the hill country players will play through a bass amp so that they don't Mm -hmm. have to get a bass player because it's just another person to pay and the kind of music has a steady thumb where it sounds Mm -hmm. like a bass if you have an octave pedal or a bass amp Mm -hmm. so I didn't want to go that far but I crank my bass up on my amp to like 12 and the other ones are at like (laughs) 6 so that's pretty much my tone and then a tiny little bit of reverb and that's it and my guitar which is metal so of course it's going to sound unique to that instrument you know it's not like you're going to get the same tone if you put an electric in that but those are that's it that's all I do yeah if people are trying to steal your tone it will be hard to do but but go for it the tips are simple but you're never going to get there (laughs) um are you willing to do a brief lightning round just shoot from the hip don't think too hard I have like six or seven questions Okay. Who's your dream co-writer? Oh my gosh, that's really hard. I was just listening to someone the other day that I was like, these songs are so good. I failed this lightning round. I'm so sorry. I'm bad at this kind of stuff, especially when it comes to shouting someone out. I mean, I guess I keep saying I would love to write and work with Amethyst Kia. Her songs are so badass. She also straddles a few different influences and genres, and I worked with her on the Bank of America banjo ad a long time mm-hmm. ago and that's the only time I've ever crossed paths with her and she was so cool and so nice that I'm like I would love to co-write with her I don't co-write a lot anyway so I guess this is a throwaway answer dude Amethyst is so great and she's also the first person I ever interviewed for this podcast oh my gosh and she is like one of the best solo performers I've ever seen and like seeing how she's gotten even like I feel like she's expanding over the years like yeah. her performance is just getting bigger and bigger and more focused it's dope she's awesome um, She's really good. Would love to see that collab. Okay, do you have um, a pre-show drink, a go-to drink? Yeah, tequila soda with lime. Recently, mezcal margaritas also definitely make the cut. Assuming that we go through like metamorphosis and multiple lives, what animal do you think you were in a past life? 
I might have been a cat. I might have been. A, I mean, just having one. I'm just like, yeah, there's yeah. some similarities. What animal do you think you might be in your next life? A salamander. Vital to the ecosystem. What is your favorite city to have a day off in? Uh, probably Paris or London. And finally, what is your most useful non-musical skill? I speak three, four languages. That's pretty useful. That's gotta um, be it. Christina Vane, thank you so much for being a guest on Basic Folk. Everybody go listen to Make Myself Me Again out on May 20th, is that correct? May 20th. So exciting. Um, Congrats on the record. It is beautiful, and I cannot wait to see you live. Thanks, Lizzie. It was so good to talk to you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes on there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app, or you can find them on our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.